I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Sean B. Carroll. Sean is an evolutionary developmental biologist. His lab studies how novelty evolves, how new structures, new forms evolve in the animal kingdom, and what the molecular genetic basis of those things are. So he's both an evolutionary biologist, someone who studies how organisms change over time, and also a developmental biologist, someone who studies how animal bodies are put together. And so he he's really good at thinking about how tweaking or changing the process by which animals are constructed over the course of development results in evolutionary change over time. Sean is the author of many popular science books about evolution, including Endless Forms Most Beautiful, which is probably one of my favorites. It's actually a book that made me want to study evolution. I actually worked in Sean's lab when I was in college for almost five years and spent a lot of time thinking about some of this stuff. Sean went on to do a number of other things. Um, he's he's had a lab for many years now, but he was also the VP of Education for the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and oversaw one of their production studios. So he was involved in making a lot of educational content, uh, science documentaries and things like this. And he recently stepped away to go back to the lab full time at the University of Maryland. And so I talked to Sean about all sorts of topics to do with evolution and development. How are animal bodies put together? What are the molecular genetic mechanisms that govern some of that? Uh, how does evolution work? What is natural selection? What is sexual selection? How do mutations accumulate? Uh, what kinds of mutations happen and what kinds of genes to create certain types of phenotypic or anatomical change? Um, we talked a little bit about uh, the evolution of snake venom, which is what he's studying now in the lab. Uh, we talked about human evolution. We talked about the speed of evolution. So if if you're interested in animal diversity, how animals are put together and how they change over time, this is a really interesting episode. Sean's a phenomenal science communicator. I had a lot of fun catching up with him on the podcast. As always, I'll remind you that I have a Substack, mindandmatter.substack.com. You can subscribe to my free weekly newsletter or support the podcast by becoming a paid subscriber to get early access to episodes and other paid subscriber benefits. I put all of my podcast content on that Substack as well as my long-form science writing, which synthesizes and integrates a lot of the topics I talk about across different episodes. Um, so please go check that out if you haven't already. And with that, this episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure. And vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Here's my conversation with Sean Carroll.
dual duty there as both VP of science education and head of the studio. 13 years as VP, six years as head of studio. That was incredibly busy and you cannot sustain that for infinity. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but I thought it was time to, to step back and I had my lab here. I was going every Friday to the lab, but I thought I'm, this is, I kind of feel like I'm refilling, you know, the well now back in science for a few months enjoying reading, enjoying daily conversations about research in the lab. Um, you know, still, still have a hand in the film storytelling, but I'm not responsible for the, the production. The enterprise. So yeah. I am, I am in a good place. Okay, great. What's uh, how, how big is the lab now? Eight people. Oh, that's, that's like, that's a good size. I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's enough for things to be happening and not so many that I'm overwhelmed and, you know, stretch, stretch too thin. So, yeah. What, um, well, just for background, for people who don't know you, what, what do you study generally? And then can you just give, give a snapshot of, of some of the projects you're working on right now? Yeah. The central question that's guided things for a long time is the origin of novelty, where new things come from in the course of evolution. And that's really things that are sort of qualitatively novel that either it's, body parts that do something new or molecules that do something new or and give some sort of capability to an organism it didn't have before. And I've decided to focus a lot of energy on the origin of snake venoms and their toxins. Because the fundamental reason why that's interesting, venoms have been invented multiple times in the animal kingdom, you know, spiders and scorpions and octopi and snakes and all that kind of stuff. They've come up with, uh, venoms independently many times and the question is where do those things come from are those sort of normal body proteins that you've sort of hijacked to do something new or you really have this evolution really stitched something together that didn't exist before and in snakes in particular there's lots of just the history of snakes which is underappreciated um, how they've sort of invaded continents relatively recently in evolutionary terms and flourished, radiated into all sorts of species. They're they're really underappreciated as models of evolution. And um, you know, one of the things I want to talk about first with you is you, know, you, you study evolution. Obviously, we're going to talk about a lot of evolution stuff. I can remember being, uh, you know, seventeen, a high school student, and I knew what evolution was in the abstract. You know, at the level that you learn about in high school biology, I know that I knew at the time. You know, millions and millions of years go by, the DNA mutates, new yeah. things emerge, but it was all kind of abstract. And it wasn't until I read your book, uh, "Endless Forms of Most Beautiful," that things kind of clicked and became much more concrete and just easy yeah. to intuit. And and I think the reason for that is just if you are trying to understand evolution, it makes it a lot easier if you first understand something about how bodies are built in development. And then yeah. you realize, oh, if I just sort of tweak this process, you know, it just makes everything a lot more right. rockable, I think, to the mind. Yeah. So we, we can all appreciate, we all develop from an egg, right? A single-celled egg made all these body parts. So, you know, changes in anatomy are due to changes in development. And you can appreciate with all these different processes going on that, you know, a little tweak here, a little tweak there can, can make a pretty big difference. And, you know, we had no access to understanding those tweaks, you know, really until the, the 1980s. Um, 
So that this interested biologists for a really long time, but we couldn't make it concrete until the 80s and 90s and um, and really get into to the, the actual um, mechanism of how bodies are built and how they change. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that, that, I think that changed a lot of things for the way we could talk about evolution. Evolution has this, you know, evolutionary science has a big theoretical history. There was a concrete history that Darwin gave us, but there was a big theoretical period of, okay, you know, how do small changes add up to be big things? But we just couldn't get to the concrete. And I, I think a lot of people, including me, need, need the concrete. I want to look at creatures. I want to look at parts of those creatures. I want to know why those parts matter and their, you know, in the world they live in. And I want to know how those parts change. And now I've got a, now it's like I got a full description, you know, of the, you know, owner's manual mm-hmm. of, uh, of of how things work. Yeah, and and I think part of what you're referring to there is, you know, there's literally, you know, between Darwin and you or Darwin and, you know, the 1980s developmental biology, you know, there were decades and decades of of research happening, but a lot of that was basically applied statistics and it was the math yeah. to figure out and the number crunching to literally calculate like, oh, okay, if you've got this much time and this much DNA, yes, you could, you can account for things, but yeah. it was literally like math and it wasn't like mechanistic biology. Yeah, it was, it was mathematical, it was heavily mathematical models, brilliant people. I mean, you know, especially in the in the twenties and thirties, but re- realize if you know a lot of that math came before we had the double helix of DNA. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's not till nineteen fifty three that really the world sort of understands that you know what the genetic material is. There was scientific evidence that it was DNA from some years earlier, but that was not kind of widely understood. And it was really the structural model of DNA that we said, okay, here's the molecule that transmit the inform- information generation to generation. And it was instantly obvious to Watson and Crick how mutation happened. It was a change in the sequence of bases, and that would change the characteristics of organisms. Now we have concrete for the genetic material, and we know that evolutionary change must be due to changes in genetic material. So we really just couldn't put, you know, that kind of uh, foundation underneath Darwin until we were able to look at the stuff that's changing in evolution. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things I want to ask you about here, when I first started learning some of these key facts, I remember being blown away. And uh, uh, the question I'm going to ask you is, how many genes does a human being have? And I want I want you to put that in historical context for us by telling us, how many genes do we, do we, do we know we have today? And what was the thinking before we actually did the human genome project and actually could look and see? Yeah. So the, the question of how many genes any creature has, that was a, that was a question I, for, I got a sort of a front row seat to because the technology for sequencing DNA sort of sprang up just as I was hitting graduate school. That was then starting to be applied on a larger and larger scale. But there was still a good decade and a half before between sort of being able to sequence a gene and being able to sequence a genome, the entire genetic complement of an organism. And I would say for most of that time, well, there are several, I'm going to start with this as sort of like several biases that I can, I can recall because I was exposed to all of them. Biases in human medicine, biases in, in biology, but a huge human bias about human biology that somehow we must be the most complicated, right? Now you would be better situated than I am to con- to comment on that from a, neurobiological point of view, but from a genetic point of view, 
um, there was an anticipation that, you know, we would be, you know, genetically more complex than any creature on the planet. Well, it took a while to get to that answer, but, you know, the first picture we got was probably of, the, of a bacteria. And those are sort of on the scale of four or 5,000 genes, essentially, you know, run the metabolism and physiology in, in bacterial cells. Mm-hmm. And then um, it took a while to get to animals like um, the fruit fly, Drosophila, or the nematode worm, Cinerabditis. And in those cases, we were probably getting into the ballpark, 13, 14,000 genes, something like that. And, and then the question would be, what would humans have? And I, there were, well, look, one of my, one of my heroes, uh, Jacques Minot, I think I have him on tape somewhere. Uh, you know, there's a video recording him somewhere. This is in the 60s, just extrapolating because we knew that of the size of, of you know, the amount of DNA in a human cell, the humans might have 2 million genes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for a while there, I think the number that I heard circulating might be like 100,000 genes. So still, you know, far more than other animals or whatever. And I remember having this discussion with a really prominent fruit, fruit fly researcher who had a who had a good grip on things. And he said, well, Sean, you know, what do you think? And I said, it's not going to be much more than a fly or a worm, you know, 15, 20,000. Bingo. You know, it's, maybe it's 20,000, but it's not any more than a mouse or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, first of all, that kind of, you know, vanquishes our genetic, you know, specialty, you know, our specialness genetically. But it really underscores something that, as you know, is fundamentally interesting to me about evolution, which is, how you build diversity with essentially the same toolkit of genes. Mm-hmm. So you don't need more genes to make more and different kinds of creatures. You can use the same genes you got just in myriad different ways. So in many ways, sort of the, you know, the leveling of the playing field for humans to, to have a similar genetic complement as mice and, you know, chickens and even fruit flies was to also tell us that we shouldn't be thinking that, the number of genes dictates the complexity of a creature, but it's it's how genes get used that are the real source of diversity, and um, that is a you know major meshes that then emerged in research that was directly comparing how different animals were built and and what the what the genetic machinery involved was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so just just the simple observation that we don't have that many more total genes than a fly, and we've got yeah. comparable numbers to and sometimes even less than you know creatures that we would basically universally agree are simpler than us that tells you that yeah it's, it's about how you use this stuff much more than it is the the amount that you have right and you know obviously you're going to tell us a lot about the the how you use it part of it um i want to build up a little bit of vocabulary for people so when we talk about genes what exactly are we talking about in the dna in terms of like protein coding sequences versus other stuff yeah, so let's I mean, let's do a little um, little accounting. So basically, we we've got twenty three pairs of chromosomes. Okay, a chromosome is a long molecule of DNA. A gene is a segment of that molecule of DNA that has some information that gets used in in cells. So, you know, if we you might say maybe on average there might be a thousand genes per human chromosome. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm averaging things out a little bit. So an individual gene is going to take up a certain amount of linear space on a molecule of DNA. That gene, um, a segment of DNA, in order for it to then contribute to physiology or development of an organism, is going to have to be 
used to make as instructions to make proteins. And there's an intermediate in that, which is it's first transcribed into RNA. All this language, all this cryptographic language, by the way, came from, you know, the discoverers who all had kind of a post-World had a World War II background, right? So mm-hmm. the the gene is transcribed, right? So you make this intermediate transcript, and that transcript is translated, decoded into making protein using genetic code, sort of like, you know, a code book or, you know. Mm-hmm. So think of things like the Rosetta Stone. I never actually thought about that, that um, the discoverers here were sort of operating in the, the Oppenheimer era. Yeah, yeah, they're coming yeah. out. Well, and, and, you know, Crick, who is probably the, who's definitely the most brilliant um, theoretician in biology, Crick worked for the Admiralty in World War II. You know, so all these folks, a lot of these folks had, if not a direct World War II background, they were of the era just coming right out of World War II. So they had this, you know, code books and, transcripts and translations and decoding and deciphering all that language was was there but anyway the, the point is is that when we think about a, a gene we're really talking about a, a a stretch of dna a linear sequence of dna four letters um, might take up thousands and thousands of letters maybe even a hundred thousand letters for a gene but still it's a discrete segment of dna and that information is in a stepwise process transcribed and translated into the making of proteins and proteins are linear chains of molecules called amino acids, but those proteins do essentially all the work in our bodies. They're the things that carry oxygen. They're the things that fight off invaders. They're the things that digest our food, et cetera. And really to operate a cell, just to do the work of any old cell, looks like you probably need five or 6,000 genes working. So some of the genes we have are specialized to various cells. We have genes that, as I said, that carry oxygen, they're in our red blood cells. Genes, they're active in our red blood cells. Genes that fight off invaders are active in our white blood cells. Genes that transmit electrical signals, those are in our neurons. Um, so, you know, genes that build bone, uh, you know, proteins that build bones, those are, of course, going to be in, in, in cartilage and bone. So, um, you know, we've got a, a lot of things that are specialized, but we also have a core that we share with almost everything on the planet to just do basic um, metabolism of mm-hmm. a cell. Yeah, so things like you know, literally making ATP, making energy, or how the basics, the fundamentals of how a cell divides, the things that every single cellular creature has to do. Absolutely. And this stuff is deep. So we can see that that stuff is shared way back. That's shared throughout. And there's many things we share with bacteria. There's lots of things we share with simple unicellular creatures. Um, And so we know that stuff goes back. In fact, the genetic code we use is exactly the same genetic code that a fly uses, that a bacterium uses, et cetera. So the genetic code is universal or universal with respect to planet earth. (laughs) But I tell you that stuff is old, but that machinery for doing all that stuff has been around a very long time and every cell needs it. And when we say, um, you know, we often, we often talk about genes with respect to proteins, like a gene encodes a protein. If you look at all, uh, if you look at the whole genome, roughly speaking, what percentage of the letters are the code to make proteins versus other? I think in the human, uh, I, I'm not going to give you a precise figure because it's kind of left my aging brain. It's probably on the order of like 2%. Okay. So, but quite, quite a small amount. It's not quite like, a small yeah. amount. So there's tons of stuff, tons of other DNA in our cells, not devoted to encoding proteins. And, you know, the term, I used to hear this term a lot more. I don't hear it as much today. Um, I've also probably tuned it out because I do know it still gets used, uh, is junk DNA. You know, and I think the idea historically, you can correct me if I'm wrong on the details, is, you know, the Human Genome Project came out. We started, 
looking at the actual code more, we realized, okay, we only have X number of genes. We only have, you know, 2%, give or take of the genome devoted to uh, encoding proteins. Uh, and so there's all this other junk DNA. Yeah. What, what is junk DNA? And does, does that term even make sense today? No, it's a bad term because it, it lumps and we don't, we don't want to lump. We don't want to lump. It was appreciated. And this is, you know, it, it's, it's kind of an inconvenience to biologists and it's kind of aesthetically <laughs> not pleasing. But there's reasons why genomes can accumulate a pretty large amount of like repetitive DNA. So there's, we, we get exposed to agents like some viruses that insert DNA in our, uh, insert DNA into our genomes. There's processes going on where, where DNA can get amplified. And that doesn't mean that DNA necessarily contributes to how our cells perform or anything that we do. So we, it's, you know, humans, I'll just use humans as an example. There's not necessarily a lot of pressure to kind of prune out DNA. So you can sort of think of it it's like, you know, kind of like the garage or some storage shed you've got, you know, stuff can pile up there, whether you're using it or not over mm -hmm. evolutionary time, it can pile up. But in that garage or in that storage shed, there are some useful tools and yeah. there's still a small percentage. So if we, it's better to sort of talk about the coding fraction, which is small. There's a non-coding fraction, which is very large, but some small part of that coding fraction is, is also crucial machinery that governs how genes are used. And I think the best category to sort of describe these are things like genetic switches. Mm -hmm. These are sequences in the DNA that the way they, they operate in the process of turning genes on and off. And so it's not all junk, right? The, the non-coding DNA is not all junk. There's a part of that non-coding DNA that it's crucial to the whole choreography of which genes get turned on and off in your cells and in which cells and at which what times in the development of an individual. That stuff was really hard to find. Okay. So the, I can give you sort of a historical reason why junk has, you know, kind of held on. First, people found, and then in some other species like some amphibians, there's a massive amount of DNA that doesn't encode anything. And people are like, ah, you know, junk. Yeah. <laughs> but because there's a universal genetic code, it's very easy for our computer programs to identify stretches of DNA that encode proteins. Mm -hmm. Bang, easy as can be. It's not easy to identify among that other DNA, which stuff operates in some important function and which stuff is just going along for the ride, which stuff mm -hmm. is just that, you know, that stuff in the gar in the garage or the storage shed. And, and, and it, it is some combination of both. Is that, is that true? Yeah. 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 Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that had to be, that has to be figured out experimentally. There's no kind of computer program that will tell you this segment of DNA exactly operates this way. Mm -hmm. um, so it was longer to realize that probably about in the human, I'm going to say about 3% of the DNA is devoted to orchestrating how that 2% of the DNA gets used. And um, all that stuff is really important. That's what orchestrates, you know, that's how you put a head in the right place and, make the right number of red blood cells and, you know, uh, uh, lots of other choreography of, of how genes get used. Mm -hmm. One, um, I want to give people a sense that there's different, um, there's different types of genes encoding different types of proteins. And so one distinction that I think is useful is, you know, there's a lot of genes that encode proteins that do um, like the everyday 
housekeeping physiology stuff of the cell. So enzymes right. that chop up certain, you know, nutrients right. or, you know, carry oxygen around or whatever, you know, they're, they're, they're doing the, the, the daily operations of the cell. Right. And then there's other proteins. And one example of a class would be transcription factors. So right. what are transcription factors and how do they differ from say like enzymes? Right. So transcription factors are proteins that govern the activity of other genes. And some transcription factors, wow, some of them may govern the activity of, you know, 500 or a thousand genes or more. So if you want to think in sort of a hierarchical terms, you sort of any meta metaphor you want, you know, these are sort of the generals and the other genes are sort of the soldiers, but um, a, a smaller number of genes, probably in the human you know, it uh, might be on the order of a thousand or so. So it still might be 5% of our genes encode transcription factors. But these transcription factors turn other genes on and off. Often they work in combinations. So some of the, some of the biological specificity and fine tuning comes from these transcription factors working in combinations. But if, if a transcription factor affects the activity of, say, four or 500 other genes. So let's say, for example, the body's building a muscle. There's a whole lot of stuff that you got to turn on to give that muscle its property of muscles, the fibers that are in the muscle, the way energy gets used by the muscle, the way the muscle recovers after exertion, the anatomy of the muscle. There's all sorts of stuff that has to go on. And so there's a muscle specific genetic program and there's a few transcription factors sort of in charge of that program. Um, so those are really, uh, hierarchically speaking, sort of, you know, top of the hierarchy genes. And there are genes way, 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 we'll say, you know, at the bottom of the hierarchy that essentially just carry out some job in the, in the differentiated cell, the final muscle cell, you know, some enzyme reaction or something like that, that cycles something in the, in the muscle cell. And, you know, that's not, that doesn't influence other genes. It's carrying out an important job, but it's essentially at the terminal end of the circuit. It's the terminal end of the hierarchy. So however you like to think about it, I think hierarchies are probably a good way to think about it. You can imagine these genes, are, these transcription factors are so important because they do so many things. And then we realize they're so important. The easiest way to demonstrate that is to knock them out. So biologists have all sorts of tools for knocking genes out, whether that's, for example, in experimental animals like fruit flies or worms or mice. Um, we can also do it in cells and culture and stuff, and we can show drastic, dramatic, sometimes catastrophic effects when these transcription factors are altered because whole batteries of things don't happen when those transcription factors are altered. Mm -hmm. So in, in startup speak, it would be like you've got some genes that are individual contributors, like they're doing day-to-day -day tasks. They know how to do that one thing. And that's kind of all they do wherever you find them. And then there's managers that are right. telling them where to go and, and when right. to do what they do. Right. And, and, and some of these genes are kind of like executive vice presidents yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and actually control a lot of the managers. And, yeah. and there's a, there's a hierarchy to the, to this logic. And mm -hmm. Um, when things get changed way up in the hierarchy, the biological impacts are dramatic. Mm -hmm. I want to start talking a little bit about, you know, keeping some of this stuff in mind and, and we'll connect the dots for people, but I want to give people a sense for some of the basic principles by which animal bodies are put together. And, you know, one, one of the things that, that you're going to teach us is, you know, even when you talk about something like a fly compared to a human, um, you know, remarkably there are a lot of shared principles there, yeah. but you know, let's think about flies and bugs and insects first, because 
when you look at them, their bodies are um, there's there's literally segmented, right? Like you can think of a millipede; it's got a bunch of these yeah. almost like Lego yeah. blocks pieces yeah. put together. Um, where does this sort of segmentation and modularity that we see in something like an insect come from in terms of this genetic toolkit? Well, it gets set up very, very early in the development of the insect embryo. I mean, the best studied embryo being the fruit fly embryo. Um, but I think to start to paint a picture for listeners about this, I, I like to think so a lot of a lot of embryos start out they're they're spherical they're close to spherical in shape sort of think about a, a globe and i like to think about longitude and latitude mm-hmm. and and poles right so you know there's so think of something spherical it's got a north and a south pole right it's got the, that equator but along that there's there's all sorts of longitude and of course there's all sorts of latitudes marked out north to south as a body is built essentially there has to be information as to what to build at, at all these positions. So at a certain degree, longitude and latitude, that might be where the eyes are going to go. At a certain degree, longitude and latitude, that may be where some appendages are going to go. And if you make this fully three-dimensional on the inside, that's where you're going to put you know, muscles and guts and all this other kind of stuff. So this three-dimensional spatial information is really important in, in development. And you also have the aspect of time. You're going to do some things before other things, right? It's almost like building a house. You realize you're going to lay the foundation before you, you know, paint the drywall in the kid's room, right? Mm-hmm. Same thing in building an animal body. You're going to lay out some of the basic foundation, sort of this grid work, and then you're going to start filling in with specific body parts, specific organs in particular places. So segments are this very repeated pattern that lots of animals have. So Insects belong to this group called arthropods. And if you think about, you know, crabs and lobsters and uh, other favorite things like that, or, or butterflies and millipedes, they have these segmented bodies. Well, we do too. The obvious part of our segmentation, if you look along our backbone, right? So we have cervical vertebrae, we have thoracic vertebrae, we have sacral lumbar vertebrae, et cetera. We are segmentally organized as well. So this, um, and, and so both animals, both insects and and humans have an organization of head to tail, right? We know the head goes in front. That's where the brains and the eyes go, right? And at the back end goes, uh, you know, (laughs) where the waist comes out, right? So there's a lot of polarity. There's a lot of spatial information in a creature and all that has to be set up. And so segmentation, this major feature that you can see, so obviously in insects, but it's also there in us, that's going to get set up early because at different positions along that main segmented axis, that front to back axis of the animal, other things are going to form, you know, ribs along your backbone, for example, Um, all that, all that information has to be set up in an insect. um, The insect is is laying out, there's three main parts of an insect. We all know it from either from biology class or from just looking under a magnifying glass. It's got a head, right? And that's got the mouth parts and the antennae and stuff like that on it. It's got a thorax. That's where the walking legs and the wings are. If it's a winged insect and it's got an abdomen. And often that abdomen is segmented. It may or may not have anything sort of coming off of it. Um, so in building an insect, you're sort of laying out head, thorax, abdomen, and then within that a segmented pattern because the thorax has multiple segments, the abdomen has multiple segments, et cetera. So that sort of modularity, this is a really common feature in the animal kingdom is that bodies are made of repeated bits. 
And then those repeated bits get specialized. So what gets built on the thorax of an insect, you know, our, our wings go there, antennae go on the head. Um, so there's a whole um, process for putting, for laying out the basic body plan and then for putting the various specific features in the right place uh, on the developing body. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine, like, you know, when we think about the, the managers and the individual contributors uh, in, in, in genetic terms, um, early on, right, there, there's got to be, there's got to be uh, proteins in every cell from the beginning that do like the most essential basic stuff. But yeah. then I imagine, right, there's, there's some period of time as development is proceeding where you're eventually going to start specializing. You're going to make things like neurons and skin cells, and they're right. going to have special proteins that most of the other cells don't have, um, but it's going to take time to get those on. And in between, you've got some kind of cascading uh, temporal logic by which these other transcription factor things are orchestrating right. those changes. Right. So you've got transcription factors setting up these main body axes, the front to, the front to back and the top to bottom. So we know, for example, that, you know, what's biologists will use the terms dorsal and ventral, but dorsal is our back, ventral is our stomach side, right? So different things happen on that, that part of our body from the other side of our body. You know, think about a deer, right? It's colored differently on its back than it is on its, on its ventral surface, front to back. So these transcription factors are, are setting up these regions of the body and certain transcription factors are responsible for what goes on in a particular region. Those, those managers are saying, okay, I'm part of the head program here, or I'm, I'm part of the thorax program here, or I'm part of the you know, lumbar program here. And um, again, those things have to happen earlier and they have to go right because when they go wrong early, you can imagine it's a cascade of disaster. Mm -hmm. So, you know, essentially think about birth defects, the sort of birth defects we would probably never even see because things can be so catastrophic, it's inviable, right? Yeah. You just, you build, you don't build a, a, a viable animal when these things go wrong early. Mm -hmm. So these, um, yeah, some of these key genes, these master regulators, that would mean that, you know, if, if, if they mutate, it's catastrophic. Yeah. Um, the other, well, actually, let, let me back up a second. So, you know, we think about all of animal diversity, flies, worms, bugs, humans, birds, everything. They're all very different, but they've all got a head and tail. So there's that polarity there that you mentioned. They've all got some kind of body symmetry, left and right, top and bottom. All the stuff gets set up. Maybe, you know, because I, I don't want to go too, too into the weeds and like the molecular details, but why don't, why don't I just ask you, like, let, let's take polarity. We all have a head and tail. All animals do. How does the embryo know which side the head is on? Yeah. So it gets set up differently. It's, it's, it's sort of funny. Like there's not a universal rule for how it gets set up in some animals and say something like a fruit fly. There's information there in the egg. The egg's pretty big. And actually, so as the egg is developing in the mother, in the female, there's information being laid down. The way that cell is forming, there's information laying down that already essentially is, is specifying polarity in the cell. And the polarity in the cells becomes the polarity of the embryo. In other species, for example, where the sperm fertilizes the egg starts to set up that information. So the egg mm. is kind of agnostic. And then where the, the point of sperm entry happens can set things in motion. So you need something to create an initial asymmetry. 
Mm-hmm. It may be built into the egg before it's fertilized. It may be once the egg is fertilized. But once you have that initial asymmetry and cells start dividing, that means you have the same, you have different information across the egg. You have something that's localized. You have more of some stuff in one place than you have in another place. And that chemical difference can set in motion a whole cascade of things that can really then distinguish those different regions of the body from each other. Mm-hmm. I think if you just, hopefully that's a decent enough verbal description, again, without getting into molecular details, you need in it some kind of initial asymmetry that then cues a whole bunch of events that happen after that. Mm-hmm. And the molecules that are involved in these asymmetries, you know, we've gotten our hands on all these things. They, they do spectacular things. We can manipulate them. So if we put those molecules in a different place, you know, you can make some pretty freaky looking embryos <laughs> <laughs> and that's a good way to test that you understand how things work. Um, but that spatial information in the embryo is really what that means is there are chemicals in the form mm-hmm. of proteins that are distributed asymmetrically early on. And those asymmetries are elaborated upon in building mm-hmm. bodies. So, you, you know, maybe you could imagine a perfectly spherical um, egg and it doesn't know which side is head, which side tails. It's a perfect sphere, but the sperm enters at some point on that sphere. And right. maybe there's a chemical in the sperm and it's so it's highly concentrated where the sperm, and the egg physically touch. And then there's a diffusion gradient that, that goes away right. from that point. Right. And the head is like that point and the tail is right. then the other right. point. And it, and it could also be something inside the egg that reacts to that and, and says, oh, okay, this is, I'm a, a change is now taking place at this point in the egg. That's going to be sort of my, you know, North star that's going to orient the whole egg and things are going to happen from there. So mm-hmm. it could be, you know, sort of a physical change that then triggers a chemical change, a cascade of chemical changes. So um, different animals use different mechanisms. It turns out that kind of a little bit, there's kind of a variety of logic out there. Yeah. Or a variety mm-hmm. of mechanisms that's out there. But I, I guess the principle here is some initial asymmetry is set up that polarity then um, starts to get built in and elaborated on. And to put it in a very coarse way, you've got these cascades of different transcription factors and proteins that get turned on. And at different points along that embryo, they get turned on sort of in different combinations. And then ultimately that's, what's going to get you one segment being an arm versus a leg versus a whatever. And people may start thinking, well, how, you know, how do you make, how do you make those distinctions? Well, these transcription factors also talk to each other essentially. Mm. So some transcription factor, for example, may turn off other transcription factors. So you sort of get zones of exclusion. So you start setting up, finer and finer, you start with very coarse, I guess the best way to describe it is coarse to fine delineation so that you start with Mm -hmm. very coarse, okay, this is the front, this is the back, this is the top, this is the bottom. But that coarse sort of map becomes much more finer scaled as time unfolds. And it's all sorts of mechanisms, including sort of crosstalk between these transcription factors that are saying, hey, I'm active over here, stay out of my zone, (laughs) <laughs> and then that next thing is active in another zone and it's, and it's talking, they can set up these, um, you know, very restricted pattern, very restricted zones within the animal where different things are going to happen mm-hmm. both along the main axis, including, you know, into the body, because we also need to know what, I think there's a lot of songs about this from the fifties or whatever. You got to know what, you know, what goes on the outside and what goes on the inside, right? You want, you want a gut running through the middle, mm-hmm. not the outside of the animal. You want, you know, skin on the outside, you want to put a skeleton in the right place. So it's three, it's, you know, three-dimensional information. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine, so like, as we start to think about like, 
okay, you know, we, we get some sense for how the body is put together and we've got, you know, we can talk about transcription factors and the mechanisms that underlie that. Immediately, you know, in, in as we're talking about this, you can start to intuit, I think, that, okay, if I'm now going to start to think about evolution and think about how mutations tweak this developmental process to create a new type of animal, it becomes pretty clear and pretty intuitive, I think, that okay, if I mess with the the sequence of one of these master regulators, that's probably going to be catastrophic. It's probably going to break everything because right. right from the beginning, things are going to go wrong. Right. And then that gets you thinking about constraints on in what type of genes and and where on, on the gene can you start to get mutations that that tweak what the animal looks like. Right. So let me, let's give some concrete examples about that sort of catastrophic argument. So you know, we know either whether you want to think about humans or mice or fruit flies or whatever, we know what happens when these genes are rendered non-functional. And, and generally it's, it's a very obvious and terminal um, effect. Mm-hmm. Um, you could be missing whole parts of the body. You could be missing whole organ systems. You could be missing entire appendages, things like this. Okay. So that's, that's what we mean by the scale of what can, what can be disrupted when these things are missing. But when you think about, let's just I think about, you know, four-legged animals and you think about the bodies that you see out there and you think about, oh, you know, giraffes with their longer necks, you know, or, you know, something with maybe shorter limbs or something with a longer body or a shorter body and things like this. You're like, it, they kind of all look like the same sort of animals been bent through a funhouse mirror, right? You know, kind of elongating this or shortening that or whatever. Mm-hmm. So the kind of the basic outline is there, but what's changed is the portions of things. And you have to do that in a way that's viable, right? These things, these evolution is, is a matter of, you know, you have to tinker while the engine's running, right? You don't, these things are not designed from the ground up like they build cars at, at Ford, right? You have to tinker while the engine's running. And what we appreciate now is that subtle changes in where these genes are turned on, how many cells they're turned on in, um, subtle changes in the subordinates that they regulate. Um, these are the kind of changes that are happening in the course of evolution. Um, not, you know, not in one step wholesale rearrangement. Those, you know, big, re- big changes generally aren't, aren't very viable. But subtle changes in size, subtle changes in um, the relative position of something, uh, that's what you see happening. How do you do that? Well, you you don't you don't have to tinker with the transcription factor as a protein itself. You tinker with these subtle aspects of space and time. Well, I turn it on in a few more cells, mm-hmm. or I leave it on longer, and th- or those cells divide longer. That's going to change the size and shape of something in a in a viable way. Mm-hmm. That's the sort of stuff that variation is is made of. So how are what kinds of mutations have those properties, those are generally mutations in the switches. Those are mutations in the non-coding parts of DNA that influence this choreography of, of how these genes work in space and time. Um, and they're not catastrophic. And, and, and furthermore, these mutations, these switches, an individual gene, say one of these top regulator genes, it might itself have 10 or 20 switches associated with it. So, and a mutation in one switch has no effect on the other switches. Mm -hmm. So if you think about a gene, for example, that might be involved in building bone, 
it might have a switch that turns on very late, say, for example, in the elaboration of the fingers, okay? Well, tinker with that, and you might be changing the width and length of fingers, mm-hmm. okay? But you're not changing the backbone. You're not changing leg length or things like this, right? So it gives fine tuning control over the, the proportions of body parts and the compositions of, of body parts. Yeah. So the action, the evolutionary action in terms of the evolution of anatomy, the evolutionary action is in these switches that control this choreography. It's not actually in the proteins themselves. And that was, that was we probably may need to get into that, maybe not, but that was sort of a breakthrough in thinking for evolutionary science because until then people were really thinking about how proteins change. <laughs> yeah. And, and I like the, uh, I like what the, the fun house mirror analogy that you brought up. Um, it reminds me, you know, in, in, commonly in like a textbook, you know, when you start talking about evolution and homology and how the basic structures are often shared across distantly related organisms, you know, you might see the, the picture of the human arm and hand next to the whale's fin and the bat's wing. Right. And even, you know, even as a, um, you know, even as a young student, you can appreciate, oh yeah, like it's the same basic set of pieces in the same geometric arrangement, but one, this piece is longer in this creature and shorter in this creature. And it sounds like what you're saying is you can get there slowly um, and little by little over time by just saying, okay, turn on this protein a little bit more or leave, leave it on a little bit earlier or whatever. And those are all coming from mutations in these non-coding switches. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and whereas if you actually mess with the transcription factor, you might be missing the limb altogether. Yeah. Yeah. And that would also, I, I guess, kind of make sense of why so much of the genome isn't protein coding sequences. So you actually have a large palette to play with to, to do this fine tuning. Right. And, and that's what's evolved. I mean, it, I mean, I think, let me give you, let me just give you another example of sort of how to think of this we of course we're thinking about our bodies we're most familiar with our bodies how did we all change etc but the one way to drive home that the role of these switches is think about a caterpillar and a butterfly Mm. okay same species right now we've all seen a beautiful monarch caterpillar pick your favorite butterfly whatever i'll just pick a monarch most people have seen them right that caterpillar is living a certain lifestyle as it crawls up that plant and it's feeding on that plant and you know, what it's eating, what it's doing, et cetera. It doesn't have wings yet, anything like that. And then it goes through this incredible transformation, it's metamorphosis into a butterfly, you know, and migrates to Mexico, right? <laughs> Those, that's essentially two animals yeah. built from the same genome. This caterpillar with an obvious segmented body, it even has little, little legs on the abdominal segments on several of the abdominal segments, no wings. And then the beautiful butterfly with wings, you know, that, that flies away. So same genome, same genes in that animal, but a, a certain program takes it so far to be a caterpillar, another program kicks in, in in making the butterfly. That shows you the power of regulation. It's all the same DNA in that creature. And essentially, it's almost like you're getting two entirely, you're getting two entirely different lifestyles out of one genome. And that's all about the, the the choreography. So we don't have such you know incredible transformations, but I think it's a very helpful way to think about um, how such different things can be built using the same set of genes. A caterpillar and a butterfly is a uh, probably the most dramatic thing I can think of, and probably the most visually appealing. 
<laughs> and it's um, it's easy to think about mutations in some of these master regulator genes that set up and orchestrate this whole developmental process. Um, it's easy it's easy to imagine how how mutating them can be catastrophic because everything downstream is affected. But are there ways in which they can actually lead to uh, functional mutations that are dramatic? And here I'm thinking about, you know, some some of the stuff that you can tell us about in terms of um, the identity transformation of tissues, or or how how do we think about the fact that okay at some point you know the centipede and the millipede actually got more segments. Um, yeah. What's the genetic basis for for actually changing the identity of something or creating more units? Well, yeah, people are working on this. This is still a this is a pretty lively area of research. This is getting into some of those subtleties. But if you think, for example, about you may not have appreciated just how different crustaceans are from each other, but if you like eating them, you, you can sort of appreciate, you know, shrimp and lobsters and crabs are, are, are different, but they all have a really sort of some similarities in, in body design. But what makes a lot of them different is the number of different kinds of segments. What's devoted to what, how many segments carry legs, how many segments carry swimming appendages, et cetera. So clearly evolution is playing with the number and kinds of, for example, appendages in these creatures, right? Mm -hmm. The number of kinds and segments and what they and what they bear. So somehow, there's, while there's that commonality, you still a crab is a crab, and it's not a lobster, right? So you got to go way back in time to when they had a common ancestor and realize they've 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 gone their separate ways. So what we know is, as the embryo is is being set up, there is a battery of about nine genes, eight or nine genes that are that are specifying what's going to happen along that main body axis, the head, the thorax, the abdomen. And the territories they lay out can be subtly modified. So if you sort of think, I'm going to give, okay, here's another analogy. I, I hope everybody goes with it. I, I gave you the globe and longitude and latitude. Now it's Super Bowl Sunday. Think of a football field, all right? And you've got the yard lines, the 100-yard lines, okay? Well, you can imagine that if, and just say, let's divide those up into the 10, 10 yards divisions. That if you say, well, the, you know, the zero to 10 is different than 10 to 20 is different than 20 to 30, different than 30 to 40, et cetera. But now if, as you're setting up this field, you know, th there's an interaction that allows that 30 to 40 to, to, to spread to 42. Mm. Now 42 gets shortened to just, you know, 42 to 50. You've just changed the proportion between two segments. Just a little, little tinker. Well, then what's going to happen in those segments is going to be different. And it's these, it's the territories that get set up that are occupied by these master regulators that are being tinkered with early in development. So by shifting the relative, I'll just call them territories of these, of these genes, mm -hmm. you can dramatically modify and sort of sculpt the animal to be different. And you don't get it overnight. Okay. We can do things in the laboratory and make really big changes but that's kind of evolution can't, can't deal with that. Like the, one of the most famous mutations in fruit flies is a mutation that transforms the antenna into legs. Mm. Okay. That's a, you know, that's a nice little trick in the laboratory. You will not find flies in the wild with legs coming out of their head because they need those antenna <laughs> to find their way in the world. Okay. But it shows that that's how we started to know that we were dealing with the stuff that, Governed what happened in any individual body part. 
But so when you just want to imagine how you get this sort of diversity, it's by tinkering with the layout of the body plans. Think of the body plan almost like a little bit of a blueprint of what's going to happen where you're tinkering with the layout of the body plans of these creatures. Mm-hmm. And if you, you know, and I, I did, I gave you an example of, of things like arthropods, but maybe an obvious one in our uh, group of animals, invertebrates, backboned animals. I mean, think about a snake. Mm-hmm. Some people don't like to think about snakes. I like to think about snakes. I look at snakes and I just see novelty all over the place. So they've lost their limbs. Snakes evolved from a limbed ancestor. So that tells you some big changes can happen, right? And we know it's happened many many times in lizards independently where uh, legless lizards have evolved from limbed ancestors. All those are burrowing creatures. So a burrowing lifestyle is facilitated by losing these limbs. So you can obviously slip into nooks and crannies and things like that. So snakes have have lost limbs relative to their ancestor. Um, And we know, in fact, some of the very specific genetic changes that happen in the snake are in the switches that build Mm. limbs. So you didn't knock the genes out themselves. You changed the switches so that that program for making the limbs did not happen. That's been clearly shown experimentally. So that's a pretty big change when you think about limbed versus unlimbed. And, you know, I certainly would have predicted it 25 years ago. And thankfully, the research has been done. I could say, yes, it's a change in the switches, shuts the limb program off. And that's how you get a limbless snake. Hmm. Yeah. And and so, you know, we've, we've started to talk about mutations and, and sometimes they can be catastrophic in the sense that the embryo is not viable. The, the, right. the final animal is never even built to even be right. tested out in the wild. Um, sometimes... It might be built, but the animal just can't survive well. So if you get that, it's mutation, ecologically not going to do well. Yeah, yeah. Like if you're the fly who's got the mutation that changes your antennae into legs, maybe you can run around for a little bit, but but you're not going to be able to find food, and so you yeah. die. This now gets us to the concept of natural selection, right? And um, I've, I've got a bunch of questions here about sort of evolution um, per se. Now that we've gotten uh, a little bit of a background here in in the developmental genetics, but let's just start out with the basics, what exactly is natural selection? And in your experience as an educator, what are some of the major misunderstandings uh, people that trip people up with natural selection? I like to think of natural selection as really just being competition between forms. Okay. So that, and, and this is the way that the two great discoverers essentially of evolution, Darwin and Wallace thought about it. They saw nature as a battlefield, but with, with competition going on out there and those that would have a slight advantage for some reason, let's suppose they could run a little faster or had a few more offspring, they do better than, than other individuals. And all that means is that nature is the agent determining winners from losers. So let's just say winners from second place, third place, fourth place. It's not necessarily total losers, but it's a, a range. So it's a competitive process out there in terms of which forms do better than others and do better means they might live longer and have more offspring because it's also, it's essentially, if you don't have any young, it's a moot point because that's the end of the line. So that's natural selection is really about, you know, the, the future generations descended from those individuals, you know, um, doing well. So I, I, I think natural selection is, is, is best to think of as a competitive process and what that means is it's favoring those things with a slight advantage and it's disfavoring those things with a slight disadvantage or however slight it might be. If it's a catastrophic disadvantage, it's 
it's no race at all. <laughs> and the and the currency for su- success here is simply reproductive output. Yep. Yeah, because yeah, you can you can live forever. You can be big and tough and strong and get away from predators. But if you don't leave uh, the next generation behind you, then then your lineage the line. goes goes right? away. And and those things that that give you an advantage, they have to be heritable as well. So if you've if all you've done is acquire wealth by building, say, real estate in New York, you know, but your children are never mind. I'm not going to go there. Okay. So anyway, um, so these are things that you acquire in life don't matter. It's it's what you're able to pass on through through genes that matter. Um, so that's natural selection, and I think the most common misconception is that in some way the organism is willing itself to that superior state, that advantageous state. So let's just take, let me take like one of the simplest examples. One of my favorite examples is the story of the rock pocket mouse in the desert Southwest. So basically these mice generally occur in two coat colors, dark and light. And um, when you look at the distribution of those mice, when you go out and catch them in the field, most of the mice you find on dark rocks. So this is in areas, for example, where there's been a lot of volcanic activity, there's dark lava rock. You find dark mice on the dark rock and you find light mice on the like sandy, uh, sandy rock or sandy desert floor. And that, in, that pattern of distribution is actually due to the activity of predators. The mice have no idea what color they are. Okay. But visual predators, owls, snakes, etc. when you have a color mismatch, those mice sn- stick out and they're picked off. So essentially it's the action of natural selection by the predators that is that is shaping the distribution of these creatures. And you think, okay, being dark on dark rock gives you an advantage. In fact, a measurably much large, you know, large advantage, selective advantage. Being light on light background gives you a, a, a strong advantage. But the mice have no inf- they have no influence over the mutational process that makes them light or dark. That is entirely a random throw of the genetic dice. This is the hardest thing for people to get about natural selection is the creature has no um, agency in what's going to happen. Mutations happen at random. They affect body characteristics at random and whether or not that's advantageous or disadvantageous depends upon the conditions in which the animal finds itself. So if you're a light colored mouse and you happen to pick up a mutation that makes you dark, that's advantageous. If you happen to stroll over onto some dark rock, it is disadvantageous if you stay on sandy on, on the light colored sandy soil and you can think vice versa. It's the conditions that you're living under. And if you think, Oh, well up on that dark rock, there's that lava rock as it, as it breaks down, it's a nice, substrate for plants to grow it's you know it's richer and there'll be more food up there in the rock and i want to go i want to get up on that food i need a dark mutation (laughs) the mouse has no agency in becoming darker whether it's dark is entirely dependent upon things that happen in dna that are not under its influence um so this sense of agency that somehow creatures can you know will or drive themselves to adapt it's probably understandable why our brains might think that way because you know we like to modify our behavior to do that but that's just not the way nature works mm-hmm. the the genetic lottery is random and 
Um, whether or not something's advantageous or disadvantageous depends upon the conditions that creatures find themselves. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the, the conditions, um, you know, the, the natural world that the animal's embedded in is what's doing the selecting. That's where the agency is, so to speak. And what it's selecting for are forms that are able to survive long enough to reproduce. Um, right. So the, the light mouse on the dark Ravalok is going to get picked off before it has a chance probably to reproduce. Right. Um, but then the other thing that comes into play here that's interesting is the, um, the, the sort of reproductive act itself. So the interaction of, say, the males and females of a given species. And here's where you start to talk about sexual selection. So let's just start with a simple definition. What is sexual se- selection and how is it similar to and different from natural selection? So sexual selection, again, another Darwin insight, is that there's all sorts of characteristics that seem to affect reproductive success. And they could be, for example... Um, things used most obviously would be in things involved in courtship display. So the idea would be that, you know, we can think of all sorts of species where males are in competition with other males. They're trying to get the attention of females. Um, And so whether it's, you know, a dance or whether it's the size of their horns or whether it's a chemical musk they put on themselves or whatever, there's all sorts of competition out there for a mate. Very, very often, male competition for a female and the females making the decision as to what's going to happen. Pretty, pretty common in the, in the animal kingdom. And those traits under sexual selection, boy, they can evolve pretty rapidly and they can get very, very, um, as Darwin would call them sort of exaggerated. Right. I mean, the peacock's tail, I mean, holy smoke. I mean, what an extravagance, right? Some of these horns, right. On, you know, or antlers on, on animals. I mean, ridiculous size you know it takes a lot of energy just to build those things and to hold the neck up etc but that's because the mating game is where a lot of the action's at so as you're sort of dialing in here we talk about natural selection sexual selection is essentially a form of natural selection but it helps us sort of focus on in on the on the mating game on the reproductive contest Mm -hmm. and you know when you think about the structure of all sorts of things where a male might have you know 15 or 20 females in a harem and competing with other males, that's a big competition as to whether or not that male's genes are spread, make it into the next generation. Mm-hmm. And um, this, this is competition that's been going on probably for as long as the animal kingdom's been in existence. Mm-hmm. When I think about the, the pocket mouse example with the light and the dark rock environments, that one makes sort of complete sense. Okay, the dark mouse is going to blend into the dark background. The light mouse is going to blend into the light background. This enables them to evade predators long enough to be successful in the rest of their life and find a mate. Um, When I think about sexual selection, sometimes I also get a a sort of complete feeling to my sense of understanding as to why these ornate structures evolve, but sometimes I don't. So let's look at an example of each. And this is, by the way, this is a genuine question I have. I don't actually know if this is in the literature. Anyone's got a good explanation for this one. If If I look at something like a white tailed deer, and I think about the males competing with their antlers. If I just go, okay, I accept that the female wants the one that's going to win the fight. It makes sense for why they're going to have bones that grow out of their head. And the one with the bigger, better antlers is going to win, win the fight. That one's intuitive, even though it's, it's, hard, it's heavy to carry around. It's serving yeah. a clear purpose. And that's a, a literal battle. Yeah. When I think about something like a peacock's tail, it's, from the outside looking in, I see a hindrance to survival. The animal is going to be slower. It's going to be harder to fly. My question is really, why 
do we know anything about where that female preference actually comes from? What are the females selecting for that's going to help their offspring in a case like that? Well, I, I don't really know that if we, we have really, you know, watertight evidence. I think the thinking is that females are, you know, are generally dialing in on these characteristics as some sign of, for example, male health. So it may be simpler when we think about, say, for example, certain birds that might have head feathers. Mm -hmm. um, and some of these colors in birds are, you, the birds can see in the ultraviolet. They're actually colors that we may not be able to perceive, but, you know, things like zebra finches and stuff like this, it's been well studied that it will reflect to some degree male health, mm -hmm. the overall condition of the male. And that sort of reflects, now again, we're sort of, this will come in for the rationale, that sort of reflects that it's been able to access food, it doesn't have any obvious body defects, you know, things like this. So in some ways, it's, you know, it, that showiness is a way of saying, you know, I'm so well-fed I'm so well-traveled, essentially, that I built this magnificent tail and, oh, don't you want a piece of my genetic material? Mm -hmm. um, that's, sort of, that's sort of the rationale. There's trade-offs, though. What you're talking about is exactly, it's invested energy in, in making this tail. Um, it's, uh, in, in the case of the you know, animals locking horns, there's not only just the energy of building the horns, but of course there's tremendous energy involved in combat and things like this. And of course, as you know, a lot of males and a lot of species die younger, mm -hmm. right? I mean, male lions, same thing, right? You know, then they get, they get kicked out of the pride, they go off and die by themselves, et cetera. So, um, you know, you can have a lot of fun with this, you know, sort of looking at the males is essentially, you know, just sperm on two or four legs, and, um, you know, as, as long as the job gets done, it doesn't really happen. It doesn't matter what really happens to the male. So, you know, the male's job is, is or you know, sort of think about it, you know, the male's job is to, is to procreate. And these are essentially um, these flashy sort of almost luxury items that's evolved to sort of be, you know, symbols of success, symbols of health, mm -hmm. surrogates. Because you can't really, you know, the, the female can't know that that male's yeah. got great sperm. It's but, it's got it's it's an, it's potentially like a, a genuine display of what you might otherwise fake. So so if you've got the yeah. biological resources to make the peacock's tail, it says that well, you've obviously been around long enough to be able to allocate and acquire resources enough that you've got yeah. a bunch left over to to make these cool feathers. Yeah, and there's a trade-off. I mean, so often in in biology there you know we we can see there's a trade-off even vested resources there it may make you slower it may make it easier for some predator to, to find you and track you down etc but in this trade-off the mating game the imperatives of the mating game are outweighing the the drawback of you know being grabbed by a leopard or whatever mm -hmm. it might be mm -hmm. i also want to ask you about you know when when we talk about evolution you know we were just talking about how mutations are random um, you, you know, the animals aren't choosing or willing their adaptations into existence. It, it, it really is a genetic lottery. You can't control which, which base pairs are going to mutate generation to generation. And yet, you know, we've talked about some important constraints here, like the catastrophe that comes from mutating certain genes in certain places means that that, that variation sort of never even 
starts the race. It never even sort of enters right. the picture. Other right. mutations you can play around with more. So there's constraints on where mutations can accumulate in the genome. And there's also the phenomenon, say, of, of convergent evolution, where you know, obviously evolution is somehow coming to the same kind of uh, adaptation over and over and over again in a really repeatable way. Yeah. And so my, my question is, you know, with this element of random mutation, is there a predictability to the evolutionary process and, and how predictable is it? Well, that's a superb question. I think we're definitely getting, getting, getting down in the, in the, um, kind of some, in some of these sort of beautiful black boxes that only recently, I think we can sort of shed light on. So we can't predict where a, a new mutation is going to happen in an individual. These are distributed throughout the genome. It's a, it's just a, a probability process. But given a sizable population, knowing that individuals are born with new mutations, we can estimate that, for example, you know, give me 50,000 new, newly born you know, uh, mice from, from sandy parents, I might see a black offspring in there, right? Because I know how many genes can give me a black fur coat. I know how many mutations might be able to give me that. So I can I can kind of come up with the math of this. You know, this might be a one in 50,000 event. This might be a one in 10,000 event, et cetera. So we can at least predict sort of a probability that something might, ha might happen. Um, but give me the conditions. So for example, give me hundreds of square miles of desert where over the last 1,000 or 2,000 years, there's been all sorts of eruptions and lava flows. Let me go in and look at the mouse populations on those black rocks. What I'll find is I'll find over in one part, I'll find certain mutation that makes those mice black. And I'll go to another population and I might find a different mutation that made those mice black. Mm. So they've arrived at the same solution, sort of the imperative of their conditions, right? The conditions have said dark mice are going to do better on dark rocks. They may or may not have gotten there through the same mutation. Kind of, kind of depends yeah. on the nature of the trait that you're talking about, how how easy or how likely is it for the same mutations to happen. Mm -hmm. But there's but probably can, a lot of traits for which there are many mutational paths that can get you to the same outcome. Yeah, I think path is a great way to, to, to use that. You almost sort of think like, actually, this is this goes almost a century, probably a century back in evolutionary thinking, that if you think about, you know, a mountain range and you're going to, you know, climb that mountain how many paths are there up that mountain how many different trails could you possibly take if you're trying to get to the same place which is sort of peak fitness dark mice on dark rock and there's more than one way up nature will find a way to take more than one way up now if one way up is many many steps and the steps in between are no advantage mm -hmm. uh, it won't take those long way won't take those long and, and complex routes it still needs a route that, that gets you there but it's beautifully satisfying both cases where we see the same mutation happen independently um, you know many times over where we see maybe different mutations in the same gene happen independently but also sometimes we see essentially species execute the same advantage or achieve the same advantage in almost entirely different ways Mm -hmm. um, I see lots of these examples in snakes um, where actually just, just think about animals, for example, that, inter, uh, that you know, snakes have to get their toxins into your bloodstream. Okay. Well, there's all sorts of groups of snakes across the world that have evolved over time. And it turns out 
that they're often messing with your blood coagulation. Mm-hmm. There's more than one way to mess with blood coagulation, but sometimes in, snakes have independently come up upon essentially the same solution. Hmm. Um, there's, uh, you know, ways to make your blood pressure go down. <laughs> there's, there's independent ways to, 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 to come up with that. And there's sometimes independent inventions that, that use the same way. And then think about blood feeding animals. Think about ticks and vampire bats and things like this. They want to keep your blood flowing when they're sucking, right? Or leeches, right? So totally different groups of animals feeding on, say, for example, a mammal. And they've got to put enzymes in there that stop that, that prevent your blood from coagulating so that they can keep the blood meal going. So when we look at strategies like that, ecological strategies, you know, I'm a snake, I want to get a toxin through your bloodstream, or I'm a vampire bat, I want to feed on your blood. These are lovely topics, I'm sure that your audience is enjoying. <laughs> but rest assured that when we start to understand what's been tinkered with in evolution, we can often see similar, if not identical solutions being come up with by, by different animals. Mm-hmm. And that tells us how strong the conditions of selection are, that things will arrive at, at similar or identical solutions given similar conditions of selection. I see. One of, uh, one of the more interesting concepts that I was introduced to in some of your writing was, um, you know, c- classically uh, before the dawn of molecular biology, uh, if you wanted to understand uh, evolution and natural history, uh, you had to understand look at physical macroscopic things like go dig bones out of the dirt and go, Oh wow. There, there, there used to be these things called dinosaurs and we can see their yeah. bones um, looking at things at, at that scale. Uh, but after the, the molecular revolution um, you could look at genomes. You could look at the actual molecules, the base pairs of DNA and stuff inside of organisms. And you could go fossil hunting in the genome, so to speak. And And yeah. one of the coolest concepts that I read in one of your books was the idea of fossil genes, that you can actually see the evidence of evolution by looking at the genome of an organism and saying like, okay, this, this animal once had this, that, or the other protein. Right. How, how do fossil genes work? And what are maybe one or two examples of this type of thing? Yeah, this is, I, I'm glad you appreciate it. I always thought it was so cool when I, right? this is, when we started to have this power and you know, to, to look into genomes and then realize there was a history in there. And I'll, I'll take my favorite example is this. So every animal with a backbone on the planet has red blood cells that use to carry oxygen, except a little group of fish in the Southern ocean off the shelf of Antarctica called ice fish that are transparent and have no red blood cells. Okay. So it's, and it's, probably no more than like a dozen or so species. All right. So of the millions and millions of species of vertebrates that have ever lived on this planet in the last 400 plus million years, they're the only ones we know of that have gotten rid of red blood cells. And we know we got rid of them because we have all sorts of red blooded relatives. We know of these ice fish, but when we look in the ice fish DNA, we can see the genes for the protein that carries oxygen, the genes for hemoglobin, are fossils. The code is there, pieces of the code are there, but it's broken, it's screwed up. And so what these fossil genes are is they're, they're like genetic text where we can recognize, hey, it's like you've got, you've got that stretch of DNA, if you like, if you think about text, it's like you've got the page from the book there, but there's typos and deletions and stuff like that. And it says at one point, and it's, it, had a, it had an ancestor that 
had intact text and we can infer that from other species, but it's decayed now. It's mutation has started to erase that gene uh, in these animals. Hundred and we we've got hundreds. We got no. We got some significant number of fossil genes in us. A lot of species are carrying this around because they've shifted lifestyles. A fish that used to live in an ancestor who lived in temperate waters relied on hemoglobin to carry oxygen. It turns out that there's probably a disadvantage to having red blood cells when you're living at almost minus two degrees Celsius in, the, in those ocean waters. And in fact, also there may be iron is limiting and you need iron for hemoglobin to work. And so you don't have a lot of iron in the diet. It's a liability. It's been selection has favored the animals that have lost the red blood cells. And when you look in their DNA, they can no longer make this, this hemoglobin, which is just, you know, the, 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 it's a fossilized gene in there. It's almost intact, but it's got enough breaks to it that it tells us no longer operational but essentially, it's like a vestige of of ancestral life. Mm-hmm. So it tells you it tells you a lot about the about the ancestor, and we're, we've got these in our genome, and you know, all sorts of species have them all over their genomes. That it's a way, another way to look back in time and say, well, that that was a piece of code that worked in some ancestors, and still maybe working today in some close relatives. But in this lineage, in this group of creatures, no longer working because something's changed about its conditions of life, and now this thing is either not needed. Or it's a liability. Mm-hmm. So, so you mentioned that we we have a lot of. I mentioned every species is going to have some fossil genes because they've they've yeah. all got some history. Um, humans have fossil genes. Um, we have a number of them. Are there any patterns to the the fossil genes that we have? Are there any themes like certain classes of proteins that that we've lost? Um, we've got a big number of fossilized olfactory receptors. Mm. Okay, so here's the thinking about that. So one of the biggest gene families we know about in mammals are encode proteins that help us detect odors. Um, and it's a very rich family. And if you look at things like mice or dogs, um, it may be, I think it may be close to a thousand members in the family. But you look at humans, hundreds of them are fossilized. Mm. What's going on? Well, the best way we can rationalize this is, you know, we're great apes. Our closest relatives are the old world great apes. Um, That's the only group of mammals on this planet that has full color vision. Mm. So our ancestors evolved full color vision. Full color vision, we actually, and you know this because you know neurobiology, that we've devoted a fair amount of our brain to our visual system. (laughs) And we navigate the world in color and we make maps of the world in color and we identify foods to eat or foods not to eat, you know, using color that other mammals can't. So the thinking is that we've shifted to more visual. We we rely more on our visual senses to make our way in the world than say, imagine a mouse scurrying around the ground that can't see very far, can't see very far ahead and is finding its way in the world using its, its sense of smell. So that's a case where a lifestyle change becoming more visual meant we've left behind a fair amount of the olfactory system. And that's, we also can see genes that are involved in building some of the anatomy of our olfactory system, our fossilized genes. So we've, we've discarded a bit of our, the 
olfactory capabilities of our ancestors, living a more visual lifestyle. But when we look at other mammals, living a very olfactory lifestyle, don't have color vision, those genes are intact. Hmm. Kind of a beautiful story, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it all fits together very nicely. And it, it really does make a lot of sense. Um, obviously, we still use the sense of smell, yeah. but I mean, you can just intuit you know, uh, yeah. common, in a common sense terms, we don't use our smell like a dog or a bear does. And it's very, very easy to imagine based on what you just said, that although we can smell a lot of smells, a lot of odors, um, the repertoire of potential smells is probably more limited for us than it is to them. Analogous to the way that their their color spectrum is more limited in terms of what That's they right. can see. So we can detect all sorts of hues of color that they can't, and they can detect all sorts of ranges of smells that we can't, which is why you got all those dogs in the airport. <laughs> I want to ask you about um, the speed of evolution. Um, you know, nor- normally when you talk about evolution, you're talking about very, very large stretches of time, millions of years to to get new species and things like this. Uh, thinking about the dinosaurs and and you know, very, very, very long stretches of time. Uh, the question I essentially want to ask you is, and and I think I would like to use humans here as an example, um, but there's probably lots of other examples we can use. How fast can evolution? Uh, work? What is the speed of evolution or the speed limit of evolution? And what are maybe some examples of, of the, the more recently evolved things that have sprung up in human beings that help us get that speed limit? That's a great question. I, I still think we're all wrestling with this. Um, and we need examples you know, to learn from. But I'll, I'll start with human. And then I, and, and I may just kind of then bounce around a little bit to sort of just spur some some thinking, maybe some some visual examples that might occur in, in listeners' heads. Well, if you look at a human, you know, the most impressive thing of a modern human relative to some of our bygone ancestors is brain size. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not overrated. <laughs> it's maybe underused, but it's not overrated. So from the period of about two and a half million years ago to let's say maybe a million to 800,000 years ago, um, brain volume in humans tripled in size. That is a spectacular change. When you take into account uh, what that means in terms of capability, all that neural capacity, when you take into account how much energy it takes to run the brain, um, that's a that's a pretty big uh, commitment <laughs> to that. Now, um, oh, you might say threefold increase in size in a million and a half years. Maybe that's, you might, you know, for, for a brain, that may not be that impressive. I can't tell you if I was trying to say, you know, how much has you know, like horse body size changed per million years, or do we have a good sense of how much whales changed in a few million, you know, gigantism in whales, I think is a relatively recent phenomenon. I think some people maybe have a, some kind of peg on the time there. So I don't want people to take, go away from this and go, Oh, Sean thinks threefold is spectacular. And it's the top of it, but it's impressive because of the body structure we're dealing with mm-hmm. and obviously all the impact it has on lifestyle. Um, and not only is the amount of, you, you want to know about the speed limit of evolution. And I can't tell you whether the brain could have evolved any faster mm-hmm. than that. But the why the brain probably evolved in that period is really interesting, which is we're in an ice age. Mm. I understand it. The first ice age in 300 million years on the planet. Ice ages are a really weird time. 
ever since the asteroid hit the Earth 66 billion years ago, the Earth has been pretty warm. And in fact, in the for millions of years after that asteroid impact, you know, the Earth was green from pole to pole. You did not have any ice at the poles. Hmm. You only started getting ice, for example, at the South Pole, probably 30 some odd million years ago. And then the freezing over of the Northern Hemisphere and then the, the advance of the ice sheets and then the retreat of the ice sheets and all that kind of stuff, that kicked in two and a half million years ago. In Africa, it's not so much a story of cold and warm. It's a story of wet and dry. And our ancestors, uh, by two and a half million years ago, had invented tool use. So stone tools, you know, primitive tools. But if you look at the next million and a half years, that stone toolkit got much more sophisticated. You know, somewhere in there, maybe on the more recent side of it, came the use of fire. Fire obviously allowed us to control some of our habitat, allowed us to cook our food, cook our food, you get more calories out of it. Um, you know, we became a technological ape, essentially, in that million and a half years or so. And, you know, quite obviously, we're still technological apes. Um, so that brain size increase, you know, it, it was profound for our lineage. Obviously, it's been profound for the planet. And the closest causal link, we could say, is it's the Ice Age and that you're living under this, these regimes of shifting climate, wet and dry, and the ape that can control its habitat, the ape that has a little more cognitive ability um, in terms of finding food or whatever it might be, doing a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And so, um, the big brained apes did a lot better. Yeah. So, so basically, you can go in terms of sort of a gross anatomical change and a very, very important one, one that basically defines yeah. our species, you can go from something about the size or not much bigger than a chimpanzee brain to right. a modern day human brain in about a million years. Yeah. Maybe you could do it faster, but that's how long it actually took um, yeah. in our lineage. What about, so, so what about what's, what's some, like an example of like something that's uh, happened so recently in evolutionary terms that it hasn't actually spread to everyone yet. An example that, that I can think of here would be like the lactase persistence story. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, to my knowledge, the ability to utilize the milk sugar lactose evolved twice in humanity. Um, you know, I'm not totally up to date, Nick, on the literature. I'm, I'm thinking this is in the last six to 10,000 years. So it's going to correlate with the use of livestock and, and obviously harvesting, you know, milk from livestock. Mm -hmm. um, hasn't spread to everyone. That's why some of us are lactose intolerant. Um, but that that's a, that's a great example of a of a trait that clearly came along, I think, with civilization and, mm -hmm. and domestication of of livestock, hasn't spread throughout the population all the way. But we're um, talking th like thousands of years in a matter of, of a few thousand years. There's a few thousand a, years. You can yeah. see a change like that spread to a lot a lot of the population. Yeah, yeah. I also think somebody told me I, we don't think there are many. Well, hey, just look at skin color. Okay, mm -hmm. so yeah. Probably the, the big migration out of Africa that's peopled the world probably started 60,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, all of us who are fair-skinned, who are light-skinned, that's a big change from our African ancestors. It's thought that has to do with being in northern climates, that uh, you, you have to have less melanin in order for vitamin D to enter the skin in the way we need it. We, we rely on it for uh, 
um, a lot of body functions. Um, so, you know, that, that change in pigmentation is going to be within the last X thousand years. Um, and you can also see that, that, you know, different grades of pigmentation exist in humans, you know, across the world relative to latitude and, um, and altitude. So you can, you know, those are some examples of, of, of traits that, that have definitely changed in geologically recent humanity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What, um, what's, what's, I mean, I haven't followed this area of science, you know, as closely as I used to, uh, what's, what's, what's one or two, what are one or two things going on in, in evolutionary biology right now where you, people are making progress and, and we're probably going to get some answers to some interesting questions we didn't know about before. I think I think probably the things that that, that people hear about and and that are interesting are, are essentially paleogenetics. Mm. So, you know, this is where archaeology now has met genetics and our ability, which you know didn't start till you know late eighties, early nineties, that we started getting DNA out of museum specimens and starting to analyze it. But this has ratcheted up to you know phenomenal high resolution, high speed work, and the ability to you know, look at specimens, thousands, many, many thousands of years old, both human, human pathogens that are associated with humans, humans, livestock, et cetera. This, I think, is, you know, archaeology and anthropology are, are in a, both in a renaissance and perhaps, you know, sometimes an uncomfortable revolution because ideas that have been around for a while are being tested with new methodology. And, but whether you want, you're interested in, you know, plagues that swept humanity and may have, you know, changed the course of history in Europe or changed, in fact, the, since the ancestry of humans, because you, you had some plagues that are pretty large scale and had a pretty big impact on, on who the survivors were, understanding the origin of pathogens. Um, I think those are, I think that's an area in, in, uh, in sort of a human evolutionary studies that is, on fire and in terms of um, the amount of work going on and the potential there for, I think just that findings that help us stitch together our own history, I'd say particularly from the, like the last 10,000 years, you, I think everybody is familiar. This has been going for a while. This, the genealogy studies have been there. You know, where did you come from? You know, we're a country obviously of immigrants and everyone's interested in where their ancestry goes, but we're talking about a little deeper time, a little more complex changes you know, adoptions of various technology, who introduced which animals where, which crops where, you know, what, what's the story of humanity of the last 10,000 years? And I think that, um, and, you know, and people are, you know, going through graveyards and bogs and everywhere to try to, you know, to try to get specimens to tell that story. Interesting. Yeah. So just piecing together a story of you know, there's a story of deep human history. So like the Svante Pabos of the world looking at, you know, Neanderthals and ancient extinct lineages of humans. Right. But there's also like the more modern uh, historical record of how did people yeah. move around in Europe and bring sheep to this place and that place and all that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, who domesticated horses and all that sort of stuff. So I mm -hmm. think the last 10,000 years where we know this is where crops were domesticated, livestock were domesticated. We imagine that the people that were doing that had interesting advantages in terms of, you know, food resources. And then of course you had just waves of people moving around the globe and, and um, well, not with, you know, great abandon. It, hit, it did depend on modes of transportation at some point, but, um, and, and of course these, 
these events where, you know, human population was much smaller. You know, you can imagine that some of these uh, infectious diseases that we may have encountered as we entered new areas may have, you know, devastated human populations. So I, I think this, the story of the last 10,000 years is going to be, you know, a, a, a whole, a whole, the synthesis of paleogenetics and archaeology and anthropology is, is, uh, is underway. And I don't know if the dust will ever settle. Um, but for a while here, it's, it, it, it I, I just think it's a really fertile period. Hmm. Is um, another interesting uh, question I have for you is what is the relevance of the study of evolution beyond just the academic interest we have in, in knowing the story of ourselves in particular, is there any, is there any advantage that would be had by say a medical student or a physician in understanding something about human evolution and evolutionary biology that would actually enable them to be a better healthcare provider? Yeah, I think so. In fact, there's this whole realm called evolutionary medicine and there's hmm. a, there's groups that get together across the nation who get together on, you know, for essentially zoom seminars to try to sort of use evolutionary knowledge from a, from a medical perspective. Um, I mean, I'll take the low hanging fruit here. Okay. Uh, you know, we had this pandemic. Did you hear about this? The yeah, last couple, yeah. Yeah, a couple of years ago, et cetera. I mean, everything about how, that virus was evolving and it's evolving under the intense selective pressure of our immune systems, both mm -hmm. our immune systems as it responds to infection and our immune systems as it's responding to vaccination. And it was really important to try to figure out just, you know, how, how far and fast could COVID evolve and in what directions and still be COVID, mm -hmm. right? Um, and you know, still be essentially you know dangerous, and so you know, scientists, for example, were studying the spike protein that's on the surface of the virus. That's what's in the vaccine. Um, so, to understand the arms race, I mean, this is for evolutionary biologists. I think some of the most interesting situations are what we would describe as these arms races, and that arms race is describing, you know. It, it's predator prey it's host pathogen these examples it's where evolution is to use another metaphor is on steroids it's essentially it's in fast it's in very fast motion yeah because, because there's, there's such a, strong selection and there's a counter strike and in the case of a virus it's got a very rapid replication cycle so it's spitting out variants you know in every individual yep multiply that by the tens of millions of people it's infecting and you're getting a huge experiment going on with this virus right um, so arms races are just really interesting. <laughs> That's a different way to put the COVID story. But um, what we're trying to learn, you remember you were talking about which mutations were um, viable, mm -hmm. right? What's the mutational path? So the virus, for example, it's mutating. As it mutates, it's, it's spitting out all these variants. Remember, at random, it's just, Essentially, you just have all these viral variants. It's spitting them out. Our immune system is clearing out the ones it can recognize. So, of course, the ones that it can't recognize because it hasn't seen it before, those are the escapers that are then, you know, seeding the new variant that we're all, you know, worried about. Mm -hmm. um, but this process, uh, we 
the virus still has to be able to infect cells. It still has to be able to recognize the protein on human cells that it uses to get into our cells. So it's changing the spike protein under the pressure of our immune system, but it can only change it in certain ways and still get inside our cells. Mm-hmm. Right? So this is the, the, the things that we've been talking about in this conversation. What mutations are advantageous? What mutational pathways are permissible to the virus? What things won't work because it will cripple its ability to infect cells, you know, game over. And when you when this is run for years against the immunity of the globe, you mm-hmm. know, how many more tricks does COVID have, right? So we hope it's kind of exhausted itself in terms of what it can come up with that our immune system hasn't seen yet. Um, you were just asking, you know, why would a knowledge of evolution be helpful? Um, you know, HIV was a totally different story. Some of, you know, people may be too young to kind of remember all that, but HIV has an incredible mutation rate, hmm. perhaps 10,000 times the mutation rate of, you know, something like our, our own cells. So that means in an individual infected with HIV, that individual has a whole spectrum of HIV variants. Hmm. That's why, it, and, and then the insidious thing about the HIV virus is it attacks the immune system. Mm-hmm. It attacks the very system that we use to counteract the virus. So that arms race, and that's why it's such a deadly virus, is that arms race is, as that virus essentially escapes the immune system, it's destroying it. And so the capability, obviously, of the infected person to respond to subsequent waves of variants is, is thwarted. So, you know, these are our battle with infectious agents and it, you know, take malaria in Africa or whatever. These are large scale public health battles. And I think to understand mutation, variation, the pathways of mutation, our adaptive immune system, you know, people may not appreciate that, but way our immune system reacts to these things, we actually rely on a mutation and selection mechanism in our immune system. Uh, I, this could be another 15 minutes of this podcast that people don't want to hear, but our immune system is amazing because in fact, our countermeasure is to generate all sorts of immune molecules using mutation, somatic mutation. Now, this mutation only takes place in our immune cells to generate all sorts of variants to try to counterpunch the variation we're experiencing from a pathogen. Mm-hmm. You're talking about the, the way our bodies produce antibodies. Yeah, the way we produce antibodies. And people it's, may not appreciate that what we do in making antibodies, our body can make billions of different antibodies using only a few hundred genes. Hmm. So I repeat that again, because everything we've been talking about is like a gene encodes a protein, right? But the way antibodies are stitched together, and because of certain mechanisms that are particular to antibodies, is that using just a few hundred pieces of antibody genes that can be assembled in all sorts of different ways, the body can make billions of different kinds of antibodies. And for that, we should be thankful, which is why essentially we will mount an immune response against virtually anything we're exposed to, mm-hmm. right? And that's that's the story of our, our group of vertebrates is that, you know, 400 million years of vertebrate evolution has, has given us a, a, a pretty impressive immune system, which is, you know, a, a very res- alert, very responsive system for counterattacking foreign agents that we've never seen before in the, in the body. It's a really dramatic, I mean, you, you talk about it, you know, what should a physician understand about evolution? Well, when you understand that our own adaptive immune system runs on the principles of evolution, 
in a fight against all the infectious agents that could ever exist in the world, including new ones that are evolving as we speak. I think I think a knowledge of evolution seems really sensible to have if yeah. you're going to go into uh, the field of medicine. Um, I do want to ask you a little bit about the snake, the snake venom stuff, just because it's so interesting. Um, it's I, I don't think you quite said this, but I was detecting that maybe snake venom has evolved independently in different lineages multiple times. Can you maybe give a survey of the different types of venom and what we know about what, what the venoms actually are? Certain toxins. So different groups of snakes have come up for, with some different toxins. But so s- s- snake venom is, is old. It may be, it's, it's, it's very likely that essentially lizards came up with venom, meaning something in a secretion that was delivered specifically in, into prey and to help immobilize the prey. Um, but different groups of snakes have kind of gone wild with this idea. So if we work on rattlesnakes, they're easily accessible to us, maybe hopefully, well, familiar to listeners, hopefully not too familiar to listeners. Their close relatives in this country are copperheads and water moccasins. They belong to the same large family. Um, Those snakes are largely very often hemorrhagic in their nature. So they, they disrupt, um, hemostasis. So they cause hemorrhaging, cause a drop in blood pressure, um, a lot of tissue damage when they bite humans. Um, they're very effective at subduing prey. And this is, you know, obviously venom is first about subduing prey. When we get envenomated by a snake, it has no intention of eating us. That's a, that's a defensive bite. Um, but if, but there are rattlesnakes that are very neurotoxic and that will cause respiratory arrest very quickly. So particularly in the desert Southwest, things like the Mojave rattlesnake are something to be alert to. There's also some populations of snakes, even here in the, uh, in the East that also have neurotoxic capability looking around the world, you know, probably the Australian snakes are most famous for this. Maybe that's partly biological reality, partly Steve Irwin. (laughs) Um, but, um, so the snakes we have here that I just described are called pit vipers. There's snakes called elapids in Australia. Um, the most toxic venom we know of in a snake is a, in an Australian snake called a taipan. Um, interestingly, depending upon its prey, a taipan can kill in different ways, but one way it, it kills is essentially exhausting your coagulation system <laughs> very quickly. Um, and it's come up with toxins that are in fact components of the blood coagulation system that it has co-opted into the venom gland. So it injects those into its prey and wrecks its clotting system. I see. So it's, it's almost like taking its own blood clotting proteins, scrambling them and then injecting that into another creature. Yeah, not even that scrambled. Yeah. It's essentially saying that you take some, there are certain physiological proteins, things that control blood pressure, things that, for example, control clotting. Yeah. That when injected in, into prey in some quantity. Yeah. If it's concentrated, it's just at a dose that's super physiological. It's toxic. Yeah. It's toxic. So, so something that has a normal physiological function, you know, working in harmony with everything else in the snake's body, put in a venom gland, deliver it, and it's a payload in, into prey. Wow. And that's essentially giving away, for example, the, probably the main concept here is that when I said, well, where do these toxins come from. They're coming from normal physiological proteins Mm -hmm. that it just turns out some subset of them when 
expressed in the venom gland and delivered through that hypodermic needle that is a, a fang, um, subdue prey. Mm-hmm. And it's an arms race with prey because prey themselves have certain defenses. They, they, you're, you're, you could select for prey that have certain countermeasures. Some of those countermeasures might be things in their bloodstream that will soak up toxins. It might be variation in some of the things that the toxin hits, say, for example, parts of the nervous system. So we know that th- this predator-prey relationship between snake and prey is one of these evolution um, arm- arms races that's going on. So that's part of the reason why we wanted to study it. Evolutionary biologists like to study things that have changed. So snakes have come up with new weapons and prey have come up with countermeasures. And that's a rich area for understanding you know, this dimension of evolution, the origin of novelty and um, co-evolution of venom and and anti-venom measures. Mm -hmm. How long ago, um, a lot of what we were talking about in the beginning, you know, that that was me kind of pulling up the past, our past, uh, because I read your book, Endless Forms Most Beautiful, um, when I was in high school. That came out in what, 2005? Yeah, yeah. I was a much fan, Nick. (laughs) <laughs> well, so was I. Um, Sean is one of the few people. Sean is one of the few living people on planet Earth who knows what I look like without facial hair. Fun, fun fact. Yeah, there's very few people on planet Earth who know what I look like without facial hair because I've had it since I'm 18. Uh, so, and I'm a lot older than you now, buddy. Yeah. And uh, so where are you at now? University of uh, Maryland. Maryland. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, are you focused mostly on the snake venom stuff now? Are you still doing fly yeah, work? I- Nope. I, just in the lab moved here from the University of Wisconsin about six years ago. And I thought we should, you know, I should take on new things. I've done that in the research lab over the course of, oh goodness, now 36 or 37 years and leading a research team. Um, I felt satisfied with what we had done in developmental and understanding body part development. I felt satisfied with what we had contributed to understanding the evolution of form and I thought, let's get to biochemical novelty. Let's get what's going on. And the idea is not so much to solve the snake mysteries unto themselves and say, here's what snakes did. It's the general question of how does, no- how does novelty arise? Mm-hmm. What, well, how does a snake come up with, you know, put a clotting protein into its, into its venom? What are those genetic steps? What's permissible? Why those proteins and not others? So it's understanding more of the general logic and rules surrounding the evolution of novelty using snakes because it's just a rich set of examples that we can mm-hmm. get at right um and we understand the ecological significance of what's been invented um all right sean i don't want to take too much more of your time uh we've already talked about a lot of interesting uh areas uh, is there anything that you want to reiterate or go back over from, from what we said or, or just sort of hammer home for people in terms of you know how 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 they should think about evolution or or maybe uh where they can go to to learn more about some of the stuff we were describing well if they're interested in a little more of how this stuff works you've mentioned endless forms most beautiful there's also a book i wrote called the making of the fittest but i'm gonna i'm gonna take that door you just opened and I'll just say what's sort of what's on my mind when I talk to people about evolution these days. And I gave you a little piece of it and I, I'm, I'm going to throw this out there and I'll just see if any of it sticks and maybe a, a listener can offer a comment. I think we kind of need a new origin story, you know, and if you take an evolutionary biology class or, you know, 
uh, or gosh knows what you might be exposed to. And you're going to start four and a half billion years ago, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I really think when you look around the planet, I think the most significant event I can think about is that asteroid that hit 66 million years ago. That was a reset button. And it's, and it so changed the world, changed it from the age of reptiles, opened the door to the age of mammals. Our ancestors, mammals took off. They got bigger than they'd ever been very quickly. They'd been around 100 million years alongside the dinosaurs. They got bigger than they'd ever been. All these groups we know and love of the different kinds of mammals evolved in probably a pretty short period of time, maybe 10 million years after the asteroid. But, you know, three quarters of the species of the planet were wiped out in, in, that, in that mass extinction. And to me, it's sort of like an eraser, an eraser and a reset button. And I, I think of it as part of the beginning of our origin story, because if it hadn't happened, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. If it hadn't happened, mammals wouldn't be dominant on Earth. We wouldn't have primates, et cetera. Um, and the world we see out there, which the, the groups that rebounded, birds from a very small number of ancestors that flourished in the types of birds. There was essentially a, a bird radiation, a frog radiation, a mammal radiation after this. Snakes, my little favorite group, snakes are, are a small part of the story before that. These groups of snakes I'm talking about, a lot of their action has happened in the last 20 or 30 million years. The invasion of Australia, the invasion of North America, the radiation to all these types, that's pretty young as evolution goes. And then humanity, and I said, well, there's another big event, which is the Ice Age, a really peculiar, really odd geologic period. And I don't need to spend your time going into why the Ice Age kicked in, but let's just say there was some really interesting geology behind that. And without the Ice Age, you don't get the technological apes that have podcasts and talk over Zoom. So the origin story I, is to sort of think about the geological and biological events without which we would not be here. Most of which was discovered in the last 50 or 60 years. Hmm. Yeah, you couldn't have told this story to our grandparents. Didn't know it. In fact, couldn't have told them much about DNA either. Okay. So science, the, the explosion of scientific knowledge is massive. I think there's a, there's a very concrete narrative we can say about our kind, mammals, primates, humans, what were, what were the contributing conditions to all that? And that's the kind of thing I think that whether you're, you know, an artist or, you know, a business owner, you know, or a lawyer, this is, this is the piece that, bi this is what biology has to offer you. And some other things too. But the part that I think you should have is some picture of the planet you're living on and how humans got here. And there's been lots of stories about humans told over the millennia, but the one that we can tell in the last 50, 60 years, including our ancestors out of Africa, remember that that was only solidified really 1959. Mm -hmm. So there's a, it's, it's a, it's a incredible achievement of humanity to understand how we got here. And it beats any other story that someone tried to tell me a long time ago when I was a little kid. And I think this is, I think this is a big thing that evolutionary biology has to offer. So that's, that's what I'm throwing out there. All right. Well, Sean Carroll, thank you for your time. Thanks, Nick. Hey, everyone. 
want to take a minute to tell you about a really cool health monitoring device I've been using for several weeks. It's called Lumen, and it's a handheld, pocket-sized device with a sleek design. It measures CO2 levels in your breath, which allows their technology to determine the extent to which your body is burning fats versus carbohydrates. Lumen helps improve your metabolic flexibility, your body's efficiency in shifting between using fats and carbs. It improves your ability to burn fat, which decreases your hunger levels and makes your body less dependent on snacking, and it can increase your energy levels by helping you develop a high-functioning metabolism. I use this device in the morning, before bed, and after meals and workouts to track my metabolism. With just a couple weeks of use, I learned a lot about which foods were causing my body to burn mostly fat, mostly carbs, or both, as well as how long I need to fast each day to promote fat burning. Lumen is great for anyone looking to optimize their health for either weight loss or athletic performance. The easy-to-use app allows you to track your results together with what you're eating and how you're exercising, and it syncs with other devices like the Apple Watch. Click the link in the episode description to learn more and use the code MIND, M-I-N-D, in all capital letters, to get $50 off your Lumen device today.